thank you very much. It's, uh, it's really great to be here. Um, so we will shift gear a little bit to a more kind of philosophical uh, angle. Um, so this uh, thing, the Future of Humanity Institute, uh, maybe I should just say a word about that before. So we are a multidisciplinary research group at Oxford University. We are mathematicians, philosophers, and scientists, um, about uh, 14 or 15 of us, trying to think carefully about the really big picture questions for humanity. In particular, the, the, the strategic questions and the ethical questions that one, I think, is forced to confront if one is taking seriously this goal of not just doing some good, but of actually doing the act that has the best consequences, particularly if we consider the very, very long-term consequences as well as the short-term consequences. Um, and so in some sense, um, I see the work that, that we are doing at the Future of Humanity Institute as complementary to the work that the uh, Center for Effective Altruism is doing, uh, a group with which we share offices in one can sort of think of the FHI as taking the very philosophic, philosophical, abstract uh, approach and trying to reach down and, and prune these like big abstract issues down to um, the place where they can connect with, with practical concerns and sort of the uh, effective altruism as trying to take an impulse to the good, starting from people who are actually involved in doing things on a day-to-day -day basis and trying to become more reflective and sophisticated about that. Um, <clears throat> let's see if we can get the... Uh, uh, slideshow to work. So um, what, what I would like to talk to you guys about today is this um, um, argument that uh, has, has been uh, influential, uh, the astronomical waste argument, which is uh, an argument for the conclusion that the focus of uh, effective altruists um, should be on reducing existential risk and that that has this overriding importance. So since uh, some of you, yeah, so this is, this is the, uh, oops, the, the outline. Uh, so I'm just going to quickly um, describe some of the things that might be uh, at stake, and then that forms the background to this astronomical waste argument. Uh, and then I will um, talk briefly about some qualifications and limitations to this argument, and finally uh, just briefly reflect on what that might mean for what we should do in practice. So, um, so some... Uh, might not yet have uh, um, come across this argument, so let me just have the summary slide. So the idea is that um, the future is very, very big, potentially. And if we just look, for example, at what could happen here on Earth, um, if we got our act together, this planet might remain habitable for another billion years or so, let's say, with a population of a billion people. You just multiply those uh, numbers together and say each lifespan is 100 years, you get the potential for... Uh, 10 to the power of 16 happy lives to be uh, uh, experienced here on this planet. And if we take the more realistic assumption that in the fullness of time our descendants could spread through the universe and uh, perfect technologies for more efficient implementation of, of happy experiences, then we get a much larger number, something uh, like this 10 to the power of 58 uh, happy lives that could be lived. So this there is this kind of finite bubble, according to current cosmology, that, that we could, in principle, reach uh, starting from Earth. Uh, things beyond that will have kind of, because the universe is expanding, will have slid a further away by the time we could reach the place where there is now. So there's a finite bubble of stuff, but it's really huge. Um, so just to kind of bring this home, if we take this number 10 to the power of 58, and we represent the, the happiness of a full, a perfect human life or a post-human life, 
with one uh, single teardrop of joy, then the happiness of all these souls that could come to exist could fill and refill the Earth's oceans every second uh, and keep doing so for 100 billion billion millennia. So this is a really like ginormous number that... Uh, um, so, um, so, so there's a lot on the line here, and like, it's really important that, that these, these be tears of, of, of joy. Uh, um, so, so we have this um, um, cosmic endowment uh, that even on conservative assumptions is, is very huge, but on, on less conservative, more artistic assumptions is this, this uh, enormous number. Um, we also, I think, have uh, that the ability to influence uh, this uh, future, in particular whether or not we will reach it, is not astronomically small. I mean, it's difficult for an individual or a small group to make a big difference to the net level of existential risk uh, that we will confront, but not astronomically difficult. So let's say that we face uh, a cumulative existential risk over the next century or so that might be, well, according to one survey we did a, a few years ago, the median estimate among some experts was 19%, but it could be a few percent or it could be more. And it's not impossible that like, um, somebody who devotes their life and really like, goes for this and who's talented might reduce that um, by, say, a, a thousandth of one percentage point, because at the moment it's still a very neglected area. Um, so we'll have a small probability, but not astronomical, a small probability of actually making the difference. And the background assumption here is like if we make it through these critical uh, decades and, and, and centuries, we have developed technological maturity, our descendants might be spreading through the universe. At that point, existential risk level might go way down. Um, uh, we also have another interesting parameter here, which is the decay rate of the cosmic endowments. So all this stuff that is out there is, is gradually going down the drain. So right now, there are these like, lights uh, left on, like, illuminating empty rooms out there. Um, and so, but, but this decay rate is fairly slow. So you know, on the order of a billion years or so, maybe, maybe half of it is gone. I mean, we don't have to quibble about the exact numbers, but that's the kind of time scale. So, um, so, so the argument then is that, first, we can observe that accelerating progress, according to this line of reasoning, that is hastening the time by which eventually our descendants, maybe billions of years from now, have finally reached uh, this, this cosmological endowment and starting using it for some beneficial purpose, seems far better. Uh, in expected value terms. Expected value is just when you multiply probability with a value. Um, then doing any local good. Um, so for example, speeding the attainment of the cosmic endowment by one year, um, if we use this 10 to the power 58 estimate of what the cosmic endowment is, would have a greater expected value than, than saving 10 to the power of 49 lives for certain. Um, but we also can observe that reducing existential risk is much more important than accelerating progress. Um, um, the value of reducing existential risk by like a, a, a thousandth of a percentage point would be worth more than 10 to the power of 53 lives. So if there were a trade-off between, say, slowing down, giving up progress for a, a few years or, or centuries, uh, it would be trivial if that could buy us any noticeable reduction in the level of uh, existential risk that we will confront along our trajectory. Um, so the uh, conclusion then would be that aggregative consequentialists, this basically utilitarians, people who have the view that the value of the world is the sum of the value of the parts of the world, where parts might be humans or human lives or experiences or civilizations or something like that. So if, if you have the ethical view that 
the best action is the one that maximizes the expected value, where value is aggregated in this manner, then it looks like you should focus exclusively on minimizing existential risk, and that that's just going to swamp uh, any other effects that your actions might have um, that are more local. So let's now look at some of the concerns, limitations, and objections, and qualifications that I think we need to consider um, when we think about this argument. So first, of course, we have all manner of traditional philosophical objections against aggregative consequentialism. And I'm not going to review all of those here, but there are competing ethical theories. Um, and uh, if we kind of sample professional philosophers' opinions, we find that uh, of less than, than a quarter of uh, professional philosophers are consequentialists. Uh, so it, it's a serious view that, that a lot of smart people hold, but most smart people seem to hold different ethical views. So that should be taken into account unless you're particularly confident in your own ability to ascertain um, moral truths. Um, um, there are also some newer philosophical issues that I don't think in, in this kind of survey that was taken of professional philosophers' opinion, I, I don't know that these arguments have kind of fully been factored in, but they've kind of been, they're talked a lot about in, in, in sort of the circles of philosophically minded uh, effective altruists and other X-risk people. So there are issues related to infinite ethics. So if you're taking this thought of having the value of the whole be the sum of the value of the part literally, you end up with difficulties when you recognize that there is actually some non um, trivial probability that the entirety is infinite, then it, it looks like uh, whatever you do, it will still be infinite. If you use cardinal arithmetic, the, the, uh, you might have like, uh, something that looks like a difference between one infinite number and another, and it's undefined. So there are some technical issues there. Uh, Pascal smogging is this, um, this idea that when you have, even if it's just finite numbers, but sufficiently huge finite numbers, then it looks like you have all these kind of ridiculous hypotheses that might have you might, in, in a Bayesian framework, assign a, like a really, really tiny, tiny probability. Like there is some like magician who can create like 10 to the power of 500 lives in a different dimension. So just how confident can you be that that magician is telling a lie? And can you be like 10 to the power of minus 500 confident in that or not? And so there are these issues. And then, then moral uncertainty that harkens back to the previous slide that uh, when we step back, we should kind of maybe think um, about... Um, uh, the possibility of, of other moral theories having different things to say, and we need somehow at the end of the day aggregate all of that into an all things considered uh, opinion. And then, then non-moral motivation, so um, that, that should also probably factor in. Um, so a, a different kind of um, line of response to this is uh, through this idea of flow-through effect. So this, this would be, be the idea that although the astronomical waste argument is correct in that this is ultimately what matters and it trumps all other concerns, that nevertheless, in practice, the best way to go about protecting this long-term future is by doing the kinds of things we would do anyway that we have you know, been focusing on all along. So perhaps by distributing bed nets or deworming pills, that is actually the most efficient way of reducing existential risk. So this, I mean... It kind of might be a surprisingly like, convenient coincidence if, if these uh, like, two very different kind of uh, ob objective functions turned out nevertheless to imply the same, the same action. But it, it's not a ridiculous thought. It, it could just be that if you think that 
uh, we, we have only the most diffuse and vague understanding of what will shape the long-term future. Maybe you think that just getting our act together as humanity and becoming more decent and like, fixing the worst problems will put us in a gradually better position to then you know, steer things down the road. And, and if, if, if people still getting malaria is just one of the kind of crazy inefficiencies in the world today, maybe, maybe that is where uh, your philanthropic marginal dollar should go. Um, but um, I, I think, nevertheless, one wants to be careful not, not to let the... I mean, it's kind of convenient if there's some big, challenging, disturbing argument, and then it turns out to have no actual practical consequence. So one would want to think carefully about whether that is actually the thing that a million years from now, if people looked back on the things we did in this century, like, yeah, we distributed a few more bed nets. Is that the thing that mattered in this century? Maybe it is, or, or maybe it isn't. Um, another kind of interestingly complementary uh, point is... Uh, the, the idea of hyper-astronomical. So, so the astronomical goods are all these things that, according to current physics, we seem to be able to achieve if we get our act together with technological maturity, these, these numbers that I mentioned before. But, you know, current physics could be wrong. You know, maybe there is some way to create wormhole universes that could open up much larger uh, spaces of possibilities or some other metaphysical option. And presumably, um, we should assign some non-zero like, probability, some finite non-zero probability to... To, like, there being just vastly more than, than what looks to be available. And the same kind of argument would then seem to show that we should focus on that rather than just reaching this cosmological endowment. Um, but here, just as you have the flow through effects earlier, you might then reply to this that uh, reducing X risk is still the best way to promote these uh, hypothetical, uh, uh, even greater goods. That that is to say that if we preserve a human civilization that is well-motivated and competent and is in control of its fate, then if, if it turns out that there is some great opportunity to create wonderful basement universes that are much bigger, then, then that civilization might then choose to avail itself of those opportunities in the right way. And that, therefore, this kind of um, collapses down to the, the uh, reduced existential risk uh, in terms of its practical upshot. Um, then, then we have, and, and I guess this might weird some of you out, but if you really start to try to put everything together in a big picture, you, <coughs> you do eventually come to the point where you have to think about these uh, sim simulation issues. So <coughs> it, it might be that, <coughs> that this cosmic endowment could be an illusion. Um, and it, it could be an illusion for more mundane reasons, I guess, if, if, if it just turns out that it is uh, impossible for... Uh, technological civilization, no matter how advanced, ever perfect space travel and, um, or, you know, maybe aliens could keep us in a zoo, but the more possible version of this, I think, is the simulation hypothesis that um, uh, it, it could be, um, that, that it, so to, to the extent that there is this possibility that we're in a simulation, it might be that, that the simulation doesn't afford us the possibility of colonizing all of this other stuff that would add a lot to the cost of the simulation. So one might then reflect that, for example, if 10% of resources are used for simulations, then what happens locally <clears throat> might actually be of non-negligible significance. Um, uh, it, it's not the case that it's now trumped by sort of 10 to the power of 50-something orders of magnitude, but instead now a significant fraction of all the resources that exist like in, in this basement universe, are used to run simulation, and what happens in those simulations might therefore constitute a significant fraction of the overall goings-on in the world, uh, which might then raise the importance of our local effects, um, particularly if you think of, depending on also how you think of other copies of yourself acting in these other simulations. Um, it's also possible that... Um, we are in a simulation that the most significant aspect of what happens in the simulation is how it affects 
what happens outside. Um, so this depends on different things, like the reasons why the simulation would have been created in the first place. Um, <clears throat> the relative efficiency of implementing uh, values inside or outside the simulation. So if simulations are very inefficient way of, uh, so suppose that what has value is pleasure. And it might be that one way you can generate pleasure is by setting up a whole simulation of a world like ours and simulate environments and human brains and every once in a while somebody experiences a little bit of pleasure. That's a lot of computational resources for relatively little pleasure coming out compared to just using the same computational resources to build like circuitry just customized for maximizing pleasure all the time. And so if that's the case then the direct effects in the simulation would not be very significant because there just not, isn't very much value in simulations. Um, and uh, we would then focus more on the effects that the goings-on inside the simulation might have on the outside. Um, but, but I, I um, yeah, so I, but I, I do think that these, these are um, maybe the, among the most significant <clears throat> complications that arise um, if we are thinking about this. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure whether this is exactly uh, an, um, an objection or something, but it's like a, a, a little concern that I have um, with, with utilitarianism. So it's, um, we, we think of utilitarianism as very, um, maybe like meek and humble, like you give up your own and try to help other people and it's hard for anybody to really object to that. Uh, it's like a self-effacing thing. Like, but from a certain point of view, it's... Uh, it's very imperialistic. Like a utilitarian cares about not just what happens to him or her and her family, but like what happens to all of the universe. So uh, a utilitarian's um, preferences are kind of linear in resources. Like twice as much resources uh, enables you to have twice as much impact. Um, normal human preferences seem to be more sublinear. Like we we just don't care twice as much about um, like having two billion dollars to spend and one billion dollars. Um, and um, this uh, uh, it could could be a concern in 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 in, um, in in how sort of different utilitarian uh, groups or different utilitarian civilizations or other agencies with <clears throat> these kinds of resource hungry preferences interact, um, and could encourage fanaticism of different kinds that would be undesirable. Um, and I, I think this this. I idea of uh, acknowledging um, not just one um, simple uh, value or preference in, in your overall decision making, but trying to, th th like the most possible moral theory, you, you make that the king and then that rules everything you do, let's say. But rather, uh, employing this kind of parliamentary model where maybe you assign some credence to different moral theories and they all have some influence over what you do. Uh, and, and maybe in addition to your moral self, you have other interests as well. You have obligations to family, you have self-interest, that putting all these together, I think, kind of mitigates uh, to some extent that um, uh, some of those issues. Um, so, um, so finally, what to do? I have no idea how long I've actually been talking about since the... Uh, the okay, so, so I have... Okay. Um, well, yeah, let, let me just sk skip to this. Um, so... So all, all things considered, then, I think that um, X-risk reduction still seems like a, a, a plausible focus um, um, uh, in, insofar as one places weight on this kind of uh, reasoning. Um, so this, this, by, by, by X-risk reduction there, I mean kind of direct efforts at reducing X-risk. So looking at, say, synthetic biology, um, thinking about whether there are ways that we could 
limited development of particularly dangerous applications there, encouraging better surveillance or look for other opportunities, or um, with AI, um, figure out ways to uh, solve the control problem so that once we one day get the ability to create machines that are really smart, we know how to also control them and, and use them for some beneficial purpose. Um, preventing uh, nuclear arms races and nuclear war, developments of new weapons, uh, avoiding nanotechnology uh, arms races, and all kinds of other things that might kind of on a direct object level reduce different X risks. That, that seems like a possible way to look for the best thing to do. And another is a more indirect approach, um, movement building, where um, trying to recruit well-motivated, talented people into this area and getting them to apply themselves to look for further opportunities. And that, that also looks like it has a lot of leverage, and that's one of the reasons I'm kind of really excited about seeing the, the um, effective altruism movement uh, come off the ground. Uh, that just opens up a lot of, like, if you don't have to have a very specific hypothesis about what the future will need to, to, to think that it would be a good idea to have, like, really nice people who are, have their act together, like, working in the future to shape it. Um, um, I also saw research into uh, philosophy and macro strategy uh, to try to figure out more uh, about these kinds of things. It looks like there are these crucial considerations, I call them. These are considerations that might change not just our detailed views about exactly how to go about something, but our views about which direction we should be moving in in the first place. That could kind of radically reshuffle our priorities. Um, so this astronomical waste argument, if it is sound, would you know, amount to one of these crucial considerations. The simulation stuff might be another. Like if it turns out that aggregated consequentialism is false and a completely different ethical theory uh, should be followed instead, then that might be a crucial consideration. And one concern here is that uh, there are more of these out there that we haven't yet discovered. And, and even just one of those might uh, be enough to make all our best efforts uh, produce no value at all, or even uh, negative value. Like if we have overlooked one thing, all our efforts might be for naught. So researching those might be a high value activity, particularly I think if it can be done in a favorable uh, environment, by which I mean um, a, a few things. So, so one is that um, because they're like, like poking around in these issues, you, you don't know what you will find until, until you look. So in, in case it turns out that you find something um, some kind of information hazard. It is like information, maybe true information uh, uh, that, that would be harmful or dangerous. Uh, it would be good to have the ability not to then kind of blow up just because it turned out that there was some truth that was dangerous to detect and then um, that doomed things. So having some context in which these issues could be explored by people who are motivated and have some ability to, to control motivation hazards who don't feel that they have to necessarily publish everything they find no matter what it is that they find. Um, to, to make this more concrete, let's just kind of project it down to some particular context. So suppose you were trying to figure out how to reduce existential risk in synthetic biology. The one obvious thing to do is to look like what are the particular things in synthetic biology that could really be most dangerous. Um, but if you then felt compelled to kind of shout on the rooftops every time you find a really, really dangerous thing to do in synthetic biology, then it might well be that your work uh, is not really positively contributing. Um, and nevertheless, this, this, is, this is hard like for, for academics because uh, the whole ethos of academia is publish, publish, get attention, like disseminate ideas, be open. Um, but that, that is, I think, uh, 
an important qualification to the desirability of pursuing these kinds of things. That it would certainly, maybe it's good to pursue them uh, even without this, but certainly much better if there is at least some capability of being able to uh, uh, keep mouth shut and well motivated people. And, and the idea with this is kind of to approximate this uh, uh, idea of, so in, in, in AI, there's this notion of uh, coherent extrapolated volition as one possible idea you could have of what you would want a superintelligence to do. The, the rough idea is that rather than like kind of specify now exactly what we would want the future to look like, a long list, trying to make sure we don't forget anything, instead you would specify some some process where you would maybe tell the AI to do that, which we would have asked it to do if we had thought more about this issue uh, for a very long time, if we had known more facts, if we had been more like the kind of people we wish we were, and specify this process like in, that points to some idealized version of ourselves, and then let that guide the future. And so similarly, outside the AI context, uh, it might be that in the human civilization context, we would want some process that, that gives us the ability as we go along to, to gradually grow in wisdom and, and coordination and, and kindness and then um, growing that power, uh, have that shape the future. And so these um, uh, movement building, the, the macro strategy uh, research and, and X-risk reduction itself, like of course once you're extinct we no longer have the ability to shape the future. So these, these are kind of can be seen as components that try to approximate for human civilization this, this idea of kind of extrapolated our evolution. And, and that seems like a relatively promising idea for, for uh, what, what should be done. Um, so I, I will, uh, I think I will, I will uh, shut up there. So but basically, the, um, the, because there might be these crucial considerations, you're very worried that, that you're placing too much faith on one particular line of reasoning that could turn out to be all wrong or, or counterproductive. You, you therefore kind of try to go back to see if there is some, some more basic good that you could be at least quite confident would not do harm and would be good in a wide range of different situations. And so these kind of indirect capacity building things seem like plausible candidates for that. And, and if you can define one of these, as it were, like kind of Archimedean points, that like then, then you can then go back again and say if, if, if these are the vague goals that you think would you could be fairly confident in will make things better, then what are the most specific actions that would actually like maximally efficiently drive these goals? And then, then, then you can go back into more specific things again. But I, th I think that <clears throat> um, at, at least sometimes trying to move up this abstraction level and, and try to think more philosophically about a larger context here is, is still valuable in terms of reducing the risk that we just go off in some wrong alley. Um, um, thank you. <laughs>